Good morning, Northwest. Welcome to Clay, 1180 AM. We've got a great guest today. We have, This is Excellent Cultures, where we help the... Uh, this is, let me start over. Biz Culture Matters. <laughs> <laughs> I said our company name. Okay. Good morning, Northwest at Clay, 1180 AM, uh, where this is Biz Culture Matters, where we help the good guys win. We've got an excellent guest today. Uh, with us, Rogers Weed, the Director of Department of Commerce for Washington State, is with us. And with us today is Steve and Zach Gandra. This is Robert Richardelli. Steve, introduce uh, Rogers to the to the to the guests, our, our guest today. Rogers, you've got to be one of the most uh, unique people I've ever had the great opportunity to meet and interact with. Your career in uh, consulting, uh, your leadership at Microsoft, and now your leadership at the State Department of Commerce is um pretty unique background why don't you why don't you start out by just telling us a little bit about uh you know what you're doing at the state of um, state now for the department of commerce uh what your career was like at microsoft how you decided to step out of the private sector and move into the public sector i think our listeners would find that extremely interesting because once they get to know you uh, it's hard to not admire the great things that you've been doing for our state and for the business community in your role as the director of the Department of Commerce. Sure, happy to, Steve. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm currently serving as the director of the Department of Commerce. Um, Commerce is a cabinet agency in the state government. Uh, we have about about 300 to 350 folks in the agency. Um, our mission is to grow and improve jobs in Washington State. Um, the agency's budget is just under a billion dollars a year, and over 90% of that is passed through to local governments and local organizations to help improve communities and economies around the state. So, um, so that's, that's, what, that's what I do today. I head up that agency, and uh, I've been in the job for just under four years. I started in, uh, early in 2009 and essentially in the governor's second term. And uh, prior to that, I, I w- worked at Microsoft for about 15 years. <clears throat> I started at the company in 1990 as a product manager in the Windows division and kind of worked my way up through different business and marketing roles, uh, both in the Windows division but also in online content and mobile devices and consumer software. Um, so a variety of different groups across the company over the time I was there. Um, so that's yeah, and um, you know my interest in my interest in the, a job in the state government is sort of a combination of, of a sort of career long interest in the intersection of public policy and the private sector. How does how does the government what what is the government's role in working with the private sector to drive economic growth? And I, I think that stemmed from a class in business school on industrial policy. And, and I, I went to business school in the late 80s when Japan Inc. was sort of ascendant. And I think they had a very tight relationship between their government and their leading industry players. And a lot of people wondered if that was the model for economic success moving forward. And, uh, and so I, I think that over time, Japan lost a little bit of its luster as it fell into a, you know, into a recession and struggled a little bit with, uh, with a property bubble that, that burst on them. Um, but now with China's success, I think that question is back on the table. So 
anyway, that that was one of my favorite classes in business school. Um, it sort of uh, it sort of planted a seed, if you will, of interest in that that topic. And so, when this job came open in in late two thousand and eight, I I was it was brought to my attention by some folks I was working with at the time, and I decided to give it a whirl. And it's been it's been a terrific experience to 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 operate at that intersection and try to help the state recover from the worst recession we've had in over a hundred years. Well, you're doing a wonderful job, and anybody who knows what you and your team are doing would only echo that, Rogers. I appreciate that, Steve. Well, as you know, our our subject is building cultures of ethics, values, and employee engagement. And I know when we chatted earlier, you shared with us how your 15 years as a manager at Microsoft, you know, really impacted your thinking and your philosophy along those lines. Could you share a little bit with our listeners on kind of how that, you know, what you learned when you were, when you were leading at Microsoft, what you experienced, what impacted you, and how that has kind of impacted your philosophy as a leader today? Sure. Happy to. Um, you know, I, I think we're all shaped by our background and experiences. And, and, and for me, in, in my career, there's no question that my time at Microsoft is really the sort of center of my professional experience. And I was lucky enough to be at Microsoft in the early 90s and when I think the company was experiencing explosive growth and really turning into the, the you know, the enterprise that it is today. And, and there were a handful of things that when I reflect back on that time, I, I really loved about the, the culture and the experience in that company at that time. And the first one really was the sense of mission that everybody, everybody that I worked with had. And that mission was fueled by Bill Gates' vision of a computer on every, on every desk and in every home. And, and I think everybody really wanted that to happen, and weren't, they weren't at Microsoft. People that started at that time frame didn't start for, to make a lot of money. It wasn't clear at all that, that there was gonna, the stock options we had were going to be worth anything, and the salaries certainly weren't you know, as large as salaries you could get in investment banking or management consulting or other things. So people were there because they thought personal computers and the software that ran them was going to ha- had the potential to transform people's lives. Um, so, so that sense of mission was really, was really uh, palpable. The lack of barriers between people on the front lines of the organization and people at the very top, I think, was another thing I really, um, really appreciated about the company. And at the time, I thought that it was really email that was enabling that. Uh, what I've realized subsequently is it's not just the technology. It also is it requires an attitude from from people all all the way up and down an organization to have that kind of culture. Um, the respect for good ideas. Uh, this is sort of related, but the respect for good ideas wherever they originated was another thing that I thought was really um, uh, you know really exciting about being there. And and Bill that really came from Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer sort of. Being reading their own email, and whenever they got an email from anybody, it didn't matter where they were in the organization. If that email had a good idea in it, they were they would latch onto that and and push to have it implemented. And I think that really sent a message to people that that good ideas didn't just come from the top of the organization; they came from all over the organization. Um, and then the last thing was just that everybody really wanted to be the best we could be in everything we did. And there, were, there was a pride in, in the work ethic there and a desire to, to try to catch up and compete with large companies like IBM that really drove, drove 
a lot of energy in that company. So those were things that really stood out at, of, about that time. Yeah, great lessons to learn. Tell, tell us, Rogers, what what your vision is. I mean, and you, you, you've been in the private sector. You've been in the public sector. You understand how governments and business connect or don't connect. Tell us, with respect to, to your experience in both sides of kind of our, you know, economic dichotomy, what what's your vision for a culture of ethics, values, and employee engagement? Well, I think the first thing to say is that very few people, it seems, have uh, have the have the chance to work in both the public and private sectors, and I, I think that's regrettable. I think that if if we could encourage more cross fertilization, if you will, between the two sectors, it would increase understanding on both sides and and help our our economy, for one thing, function better. So that's kind of one thing that I think I will continue to do after this job is look for ways to encourage more people to do that. And it's challenging because our political capitals in many states, if not all of them, are in different cities than our commercial capitals. And that's something I've kind of noticed is is broadly true. I'm not sure exactly why, but, but that does, uh, does make it harder logistically just to get people to do that. So um, so that's that's kind of a larger thing in terms of cultures. You know, I think that I think there are things to positive things to take away from both sectors about cultural aspects. Um, you know, I I think in the private sector, um, you have a real um, a real passion for innovation and a real desire to compete and be the best. And the pri- in the private sector, almost everybody in the private sector faces competitive dynamics of one sort or another. There's there are very few businesses in the private sector that don't face competition that that focuses them and forces them to to make sure they're always at the top of their game in the public sector <clears throat> you don't have that competitive pressure most most public sector um, jobs uh, most public sector groups have a monopoly essentially on what they do and so they don't have you know an alternative that's that's forcing them to be better all the time uh, on the other hand I do think the sense of mission and public stewardship is very strong in the public sector and, and gets people to work harder and do a better job than, than if you just looked at what they were being compensated, you would expect them to be able to do. And, and I also think that that sense of public mission attracts uh, high-quality people into jobs, again, that if you just looked at what the pay was, you wouldn't expect that you could get that that strong of a person to do. So. You know, so those are aspects of the two sectors and their cultures that I think are positive and be nice to try to help, you know, uh, share those across the, the boundary a little bit. Great. Very interesting. We're going to take a short break, and when we get back, we want to hear your perspective, Rogers, on how you've seen this, you know, great value system of ethics and employee engagement and values, you know, start to deteriorate and, you know, what our listeners can do to you know, avoid these pitfalls as they lead their respective organizations. We'll be right back. ExcellentCultures.com is always interviewing leaders committed to cultural leadership, excellence, and change. 
These leaders like Russell Freeman, Ross Perot's COO, and Bob Hinton, CPA and Moss Adams' managing partner, have world-class ideas. As advocates for creating strong corporate culture that builds people and serves customers with excellence, they share breakthrough business ideas. Gain insights from Russell, Bob, and others on the Culture News blog at excellentcultures.com. Off-the-cuff management is old school at the very least. With culture at the root of every business problem or success, data-driven strategic leadership is where today's best businesses are focused. No one knows that better than Excellent Cultures. After 35 years, they are the Northwest's premier strategic leadership firm. Excellent Cultures has the expertise to read the soul of your business and generate abundance. Take the free BizCulture MRI or ask the experts at excellentcultures.com. As an executive CEO or business owner, do you ever find yourself struggling with work-life balance and achieving your goals at work and at home? Are you overwhelmed in your workload and feel important things just aren't getting done? Our coaches specialize in helping leaders just like you overcome challenges and build a plan to recenter your life to achieve the balance and success you've always hoped for in your business and personal life. Ask the experts at excellentcultures.com about the right plan for you. Okay, we're back at Play 1180. With Biz Culture Matters with Rogers Weed. Hey, Rogers. So, Rogers, uh, tell us about your your view. I mean, obviously, in your current role as the director of the Department of Commerce for the state, you have the opportunity to look at lots of leaders and businesses and organizations. Where have you seen these great value systems of ethics and employee engagement start to deteriorate and fall apart? And what should folks watch out for? Well, I think one of the things that really challenges culture in organizations is organizational size. And, you know, this is something that is, you know, not unique to either sector. Um, When people ask me, you know, what are the biggest differences between my time at Microsoft and my, my time in state government, I mean, there are a lot of things that are very similar. Um, By the time I left Microsoft, uh, it was a company of 90,000 employees. And working in the Windows business, I mean, that's an over $10 billion a year business that's a global business and has all kinds of stakeholders and and customer segments and what have you. So, you know, in terms of complexity, um, the government has no, you know, no exclusive uh, monopoly on complex complexity or size. so I think that one of the things that <clears throat> one of the things that is different, though, about the public sector is that I, you almost have a built-in uh, um, a built-in rotation of senior leadership in the organization as a result of elections and and changes that come out of elections, and and that really does create challenges in terms of um, creating a tone at the top and then being able to ma- maintain that you know over time and. And so I think the observation is that the larger an organization gets, the more effort is required to keep to create and maintain the kind of culture that 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 allows the organization to achieve its potential. And and so and that effort is even more challenged in the public sector because you have this rotation going on of of elected leaders uh, of the organization that is sort of part of the system. So, if as your 
career continues to grow and improve and take you know various turns if in the next chapter of your career let's say someone came to you and recruited you to run a large organization you know an organization as large as Microsoft or maybe even run run for governor of the state and all of the people that are involved in state government what would be the primary focus points or characteristics that you would look to try to implement and impart to the people in the organization and to the people that you would be leading to make sure that the culture of ethics, values, and employee engagement stays intact? And what, what would you watch out for and what would you try to prevent? Well, I think um, one of the things that would be important to me, and it's funny because when I first started this job that I'm in now, um, my first meeting with the whole agency, uh, I, I thought to myself, I mean, I was getting ready for the meeting, and I was like, what am I going to say to these people? Because uh, this job was so different than anything I'd ever done before that it wasn't like I could go in and say, you know, here are the, here are the three priorities we're going to have for the organization in terms of getting our jobs done. So I didn't really even understand what the, what the organization did at that point. And so almost um, by default, I ended up talking about my values because that was something I did understand well because I had thought a lot about them in the course of my career at Microsoft. And, and I knew that I could talk about my values and, and be confident that I knew what I was talking about there and that that might be helpful as I started into the job in letting the organization know what, why, how I ticked and what was going to be important to me. And in retrospect, that, that was almost an accident that turned out to be a great way to start because it gave people some, something to start with in terms of engaging with me. And I've realized subsequently that, you know, getting clear about the values in an organization and, and what, what those are and how you're going to drive those is a really important thing in getting a large, particularly large organization on the same page and, and set up to achieve its potential. And so I think that, um, and, and one of the things that working with excellent cultures has helped me understand is that the best way to combat that, that um, churning of leadership at the top of the organization is to make sure that everybody in the organization is involved in, in generating that list of values and the behaviors that are going to enforce that and baking that in deeply to the organization. Because if you can do that, the organization will help new leadership understand how they operate and what they care about. And maybe that will get tweaked a little bit by new leadership. But, you know, as, as a person myself that's gone, come in and taken over new situations, you know, I would, appreci- I would have appreciated seeing a strong sense of these are the values that we care about in this organization and that help us achieve our potential and being able to get behind that as a new leader. So, so I think that starting in, in any new job that I take on, especially one that involves leading a large organization, I'm going to want to talk about values at the beginning and really get clear on those uh, from the top to the bottom of the organization as a way to set ourselves up for success. So... As you deploy these values, I mean, so much has been written, and you could basically just go online and search out, you know, values and ethics, and typically what you're going to hear and what you're going to read and what you're going to see and what the books that are bestsellers tell you is to hire people that have the values that you want, because typically folks don't change values, yet what 
I've seen take place with your organization is rather, because you didn't have the luxury of hiring people that had your values, you've been able to kind of reach into the hearts and minds of the people and pull out the values that really matter and not just come up with nice fancy words that are put on your website to be nice and beautiful and politically correct, but actually deploy processes and systems where people are living the values as opposed to just talking about them or having them posted on banners and web displays. So what, what would be your advice to an organization that's got a bunch of people and they're not going to replace everybody, but they're going to look to assimilate the values into their people in a manner that they become lived as opposed to just posted and talked about? Well, this is something that I, um, you know, it, with a tip of the hat to you, Steve, I think your organization has really helped me get a better sense of, um, which is, you know, practically how do you how do you go about, you know, having a values discussion and then turning that into an actionable plan. And, you know, in terms of how you make sure that it's not just nice words on a poster or whatever, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say that, you know, I, I have a 12-year-old son right now, and he's got a great sense of humor. And just as a, as a side story, he's, he's become very enamored with Dil, the Dilbert comic strip. And we somehow ended up with a, a compendium of Dilbert comic strips that we bought for the house. And he, he just loves those things, and it, it, it serves in a way... You know, as I as I sit there at night and laugh with him at these strips, it serves as a great reminder to me that, particularly when you get into this topic of values and culture, there's a very fine line between doing something that's really going to impact an organization and just getting into what I would call a Dilbertian mode. <laughs> you know, and and the difference there, the the difference on the fine line is all about whether the leadership of the organization is serious about you know about living those values and, and making the changes in their own leadership style that, that say that that is a, is a real focus for them. And that, that really is the difference, because if leaders, if leaders say, yeah, we want to do this, but then they don't change their behavior, then it becomes Dilbertian, if you want to, if I can coin a phrase. That's a great phrase. Um, That's a great phrase. Dilbertian. Dilbertian. We need to, that, that, you think that will become the, the, the tweet of the of the week, you know, <laughs> Dilbertian culture. Potentially, yeah. I've, I've certainly, you know, as we've gone through this journey in the in the agency of trying to get clear about these values and and open up the culture a little. It's you know some of these workshops that we've had. You know, you you get to these moments where you're like, this could this could get Dilbertian if we don't if we don't keep it real. And and it's a fine line. It's hard to describe you know, where the, where the line is, but you have to really, I, I think it really is on the leadership of the organization to continually show that they're serious about, about making the changes and moving them in the, in the right direction to avoid that. We're going to take another short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk to Roger Sweet, the director of the Washington State Department of Commerce, about how you connect high-performance culture with lean process in an organization. We'll be right back. (music) 
ExcellentCultures.com is always interviewing leaders committed to cultural leadership, excellence, and change. These leaders like Russell Freeman, Ross Perot's COO, and Bob Hinton, CPA and Moss Adams' managing partner, have world-class ideas. As advocates for creating strong corporate culture that builds people and serves customers with excellence, they share breakthrough business ideas. Gain insights from Russell, Bob, and others on the Culture News blog at excellentcultures.com. Off-the-cuff management is old school at the very least. With culture at the root of every business problem or success, data-driven strategic leadership is where today's best businesses are focused. No one knows that better than Excellent Cultures. After 35 years, they are the Northwest's premier strategic leadership firm. Excellent Cultures has the expertise to read the soul of your business and generate abundance. Take the free BizCulture MRI or ask the experts at excellentcultures.com. Has business taken over your life? Are you living to work or working to live? Stress, broken marriages, neglected relationships, and poor health are symptoms of a life out of balance. The right coaching plan can have a transformational impact on the quality of your performance at work, depth of relationships at home, and personal sense of well-being. Stop struggling to survive. Ask the experts at excellentcultures.com how coaching can help you maximize your life and optimize your work. Welcome back to Clay 1180, where biz culture matters. Welcome back, Rogers Weed. So, Rogers, let's go back to what we were talking about before the break for a second. This this Dilbertian culture that you, the phrase that you coined based upon your son's experience. Where where have where can you advise leaders that they can effectively take take the advice of Dilbert? and implement it in their cultures in a way that will make a difference of living out values as opposed to just talking about them. Yeah, I mean, I think the the operative phrase is avoid creating a Dilbertian culture because <laughs> that that's the, the culture in the strip is very much one that's not authentic and, you know, full of hypocrisy and, and contradiction. And, and that's what you have to avoid as you as you begin this journey. And, and, and so it's, it's it's really about authenticity, and if if leader if leadership in an organization is not really committed to, you know, to creating a culture where ideas can come from anywhere, and where leaders, managers, and leaders have the self confidence to recognize excellence wherever it is in the organization and promote that, if you can't if if you don't have that commitment in your leadership, you shouldn't start down this journey because you will you'll end up in Dilbert land, and and it'll be it'll be even worse than if you hadn't started. Very well said. So when we talked earlier, you were sharing with us a couple of best practices, two or three best practices that you like to use to effectively connect with your people on a level of true authenticity so that people really start to get it as a result of how you found that as a leader, you can engage hearts and minds as opposed to just talking about let's get the job done. Can you share a couple of those with our listeners? Sure, I'll try. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, again, I'll, I, I'll say the first thing I think is helpful here is, I, again, almost that by accident, having talked about my values as the very first thing that I did with the agency, I think sent a message that I was interested in more than just, you know, just having people get their jobs done and, and not cause trouble. Um, 
you know, I, I think another thing that I try to do is I, I always try to respond to any emails that are sent to me directly. Um, you know, if an email is, is the bane of our existence these days in the workplace, but if you can find a way to triage your mail so that any messages that come directly to you from somebody get personally replied, responded to, as I mentioned earlier, that's something that really made an impression on me about Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer. And I think, again, it sets a tone that you're, you're interested in communication and ideas from anywhere in the organization. Um, some of the things that I'm working on to, to do a better job of and help promote this culture is that, you know, I'm, I'm sort of an introvert by nature. So, um, you know, when I have an extra half hour of my day, I'm, I'm much more comfortable sitting in my office and getting work done than I am getting up out of my chair and walking around the organization and looking for people to talk to. And so I've realized that that tendency on my part doesn't help, you know, create the kind of culture that, that, that we want in, in the agency. And so I'm, with the help of a lot of people, I'm looking for ways and trying to implement ways of getting out of my office and getting out and talking to, you know, everybody in the agency. Um, and so that's, that's something that doesn't come naturally to me, but I've realized is super important to having the kind of culture we want. So I'm, I'm working on it. You also shared when we spoke earlier about how you have found that interfacing humor and calling your own mistakes out in the public forum have done a lot, you felt, to help you build this culture of ethics, values, and engagement. Could you talk a little bit about those? Sure. Um, I, I do think that um, that government particularly has a very strong hierarchical culture, which is exactly what we, we don't need and can't afford anymore. And I think that's because mistakes, you know, there, there's been, you know, over the years, I think, there's been this sort of a, a belief that government, you know, that zero tolerance for mistakes, you know, that you can't that, you know, if you end up getting your director in the newspaper because you screwed up somehow, that's like the worst thing that could possibly happen. And, you know, don't get me wrong, I'd rather not end up in the newspaper uh, if I can avoid that. But if the cost of, of not ending up in the newspaper is that nobody ever can make a mistake um, and, and that we have to run our organization to, to so that zero mistakes happen, that's that's not the right trade-off. And so how do, you, how do you convince people that that's true? I, I think part of it is, again, modeling, you know, modeling the behavior that you want to see happen, which is that when mistakes happen, you can own those, you can talk about what you've learned about from them, and, and you can move ahead, and, and it doesn't have to be a punitive thing. Um, and so, and I think it also humanizes you a little more. So again, there's, you know, uh, it's hard to explain exactly, but but some of the culture, I think, in state government, it almost makes director-level people and the governor and the legislators, they almost seem like they're not human because they're, they can't ever, it can't ever be admitted that mistakes were made and, and, and lessons have been learned. And so for you to do that as a leader in state government, I think, helps set a tone that, you know, it's okay to make mistakes if you learn from them. And we need to make mistakes if we're going to achieve our potential. Yeah, very well said. Very well said. So you all are in the midst of implementing lean process in the agency. How do you connect lean process with lean culture? Are they the same? Are they different? 
why do organizations succeed with lean if they do the right things? Why do other organizations not succeed with lean? What advice could you give to business leaders and organizational leaders who are have either implemented lean process in their organizations or they're getting ready to implement it? Well, um, lean is lean, we are uh, embracing lean not only in the agency but in the state government overall, and I, I think it's the sing, one of the, probably the single most important thing that the state government can do to help our our economy moving forward is to is to get systematic about eliminating waste and improving our efficiency as an organization. So, so that's super important. And uh, you know, we just had actually a, a conference last week in Tacoma. Um, to it, where we had over 25, I think it was around 2,500 people from state and local government around the state show up to, you know, share best practices, learn more, and and uh, and build on the momentum that we've established uh, off of the governor's executive order about this that came out, I think, around a year ago. So, so I was there for most of the two days, and I learned something in every single session I went to. I think and. One of the sessions was from the uh, human resources manager for Genie Industries, which is located in Washington State and has been doing lean for quite some time. And, you know, I, this, this gentleman told the story about how they, they made the commitment to, to embrace lean and they, they went to Japan and they, you know, they learned what was involved, the techniques and the, and the um, approaches. And he said they, they were doing all of that, and yet he felt like something was missing. It, you know, when, when he compared what they were doing with what he saw in Japan, he just didn't feel like they had arrived yet on this front. And, and he began looking deeper and realized that there's a, bunch of, um, there's a bunch of work on human performance that has been done, a bunch of research and behavioral psychology and a bunch of, you know, uh, efforts to connect that behavioral psychology research to the workplace. And... And he found a model for, you know, setting up an environment that really allows lean to achieve its full potential. And, and he believes that 80% of the, of, the, um, of the potential that you have around lean is around creating the environment and the culture that lets it, lets it really work. And so, um, and, and that spoke to me a lot. It, it made sense to me that you can train people on how to map a process and look for waste and, and, and create an implementation plan to remove it. But if you don't have people really feeling like they're excited about their jobs and inspired by the work they're doing and empowered to come up with these ideas and make them happen, if you don't have that culture, you're, you're just not going to get nearly the, the results from it that you could get. And, and so that, you know, that, that, that talk last week just reaffirmed for me something that you know, I think was brought to my attention early on and made a lot of sense to me that you, you've got to create the environment where these techniques and this approach can really achieve its potential. And so the two, the two go hand in hand. And, and if you do one without the other, you're, you're not going to get the results that you could get. Excellent points. So m- moving to employee engagement, another big subject that has been written about and talked about and displayed the most recent Gallup poll just last year has identified that in America some 71 percent of our workers are effectively disengaged in their jobs. Rogers, what what are your thoughts on, you know, how does someone other than just reading books and going through the motions to and taking engagement surveys 
and looking at numbers about whether our people are engaged or not. How does someone cause employee engagement to happen in their organizations, and what are some tips that you can give to leaders to make that happen? Well, the first thing I'd say is that that is a uh, super depressing statistic to me, and Unfortunately, I, I think an indictment on leadership leaders and managers, you know, nationwide. That if we have that level of of disengagement by employees in their jobs, I mean, it, that that really, to me, ought to be a wake up call for anybody in, in management or in the business of training managers in the United States. And so, um, so I, I think from from my perspective, there are two critical things to, to getting engagement to happen in an organization. And the first one is the leadership of the organization has to behave in a way that makes people in the organization proud. And that's a combination of the way you carry yourself, the way you decide on priorities, the way you, uh, the way you set up the organization for decision-making, um, how approachable you are. I mean, everything about the way leaders act in an organization, I think, is is in, in, you know intricately connected to how proud or not proud the people in that organization feel about their 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 organization. And so that that's the first thing is leaders have to make the people in their organization proud. And then uh, the second key to me is that people have to understand how what they're doing connects to the organization's overall mission, and they have to, you know. If they understand that and if they believe that if they have good ideas for how to improve their work, those ideas are going to be heard and respectfully considered, then I think that's the other super important part of generating employee engagement. So how do you get people to take pride in their work if the people just don't care? Well, I I think if you deconstruct why they don't care, it's because um, it's, it's to me, two fundamental pieces of that are going to be whoever's leading their organization is not inspiring them at all, and nobody has helped them understand how what they do connects to what the organization's overall mission is and created any sense of urgency around that. And I guess the third piece is nobody's ever asked them for ideas on how to improve their work, you know, and really taken those seriously and implemented them. And that you know, that third thing is a big part of what Lean is about, is both giving people the skills to examine their work and figure out how it could be improved, and also creating systems that, that, that collect those ideas and implement them and, and then repeat the cycle. So, you know, if people are disengaged, it's, I think those three things are at the root of why that's true. Yeah, that's so interesting that you mentioned that, because in our work, where we have the opportunity to assess and measure lots of cultures to identify, you know, where the gaps are and where can organizations improve. What we've seen time and time and time again is that when organizations just measure the culture and deliver the findings to their people, but then don't put a process, a structured process in place to make a difference, then the cultures in every single case always go backwards the next time you measure them. It's almost like people are so hungry to be asked, what can we do to make a difference? And so frustrated with either being asked and their advice not being acted upon, or uh, just being asked for the sake of asking that it really causes a lot of disengagement as opposed to 
the engagement that we're looking for. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's so very, very, very well said. One of the other things that we, we talked a little bit about earlier was that you found that that uh, humor and properly infused humor in an organization does a lot to increase the engagement of folks. So what advice would you give to a typical, serious, intense, focused business leader about properly implemented humor in their culture yeah i mean it's a it's a tricky one because you know forced humor is not humor and so you know you have to you have to figure out your own angle into that topic but i i do think where leaders can can show that they can have a good time and enjoy a good laugh and even make fun of themselves again it just it just makes you more approachable and and opens things up for people to feel like you know they can they can you know, give their ideas and, and, and not be intimidated. And so, uh, but you, you know, you can't make yourself into a funny person if you're not, but almost any organization of any size is going to have people with a good sense of humor. And, and so I, I think it's just one, it's, it's one key tactic for m- making yourself more approachable as a leader. And, you know, making fun of yourself is not that hard. And that, that's a, that's probably one of the easiest ways to, to get into it. But to the extent that, you know, the extent that you can share a good laugh at the beginning of a meeting, I just think it makes everybody, you know, a little bit more uh, loose and a little more opened up for, for creative thinking. So I, I think humor, you know, on a bunch of levels yeah, can really help an organization function better. And you have to find your own way into it that's consistent with your personality is what I would say. Can you think of any examples where you've actually been able to make fun of yourself in a way that uh, came off well and caused positive outcomes beyond just the laugh? Uh, Let's see here. Um, Well, uh, you know, I can think, well, uh, well, I've got give one example. So I was, I was on a panel presenting at this lean conference last week and there were five of us up there and, you know, in front of a room of 2000 people. And, and, uh, I had, we had been working on my, my PowerPoint slides and I had traded versions with somebody helping me. And I had a version there that just said, you know, that had a slide that said, Hey, could you stick this enterprise map into this slide? That'd be great. And then I'll just talk to it. Well, somehow when I, when I got up on stage and was presenting, you know, the slide came up and it was the one that didn't have the map in it. So, you know, everybody had a good laugh and I'm like, whoa, well, that looks like the version, the right before the version that I was going to use tonight, you know, and, um, you know, so it's just a case of, I, I don't know. I mean, you could have, it's not, I didn't make any big joke about it, but it was kind of a funny incident. And I was like, yep, I guess that, that was not the, not the final version that we had uh, on the, on the, computer here but you know i just went on to explain what i had wanted to make in terms of points on the slide so um it's you know it may not be the greatest example but when stuff like that happens it's a, it sets a tone for how mistakes need to be viewed and and mistake like that that's just an honest mistake of you know executing getting ready for something you need to just be able to laugh off and sort of laugh at yourself a little and say yep we didn't get that right and but not let it stop you from making the points you want to make and moving on. So so CEOs should not go and hire a comic writer to write jokes for them because that might come off as phony and insincere, but they should 
get serious about not looking at themselves so seriously. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I'm just saying making fun of yourself is probably the one of the easier ways into the humor topic that can have one of its many, you know, uh, beneficial impacts. Um, and so, you know, if I had, if that thought had come up and I had said, oh, we obviously had a mistake here and I'm not sure who screwed up, but, you know, I'll figure it out and we'll make sure that, it, you know, there's some consequences or something like that, you know, that would have been a way to say it that would have, you know, just reinforced a culture of fear and, you know, made somebody feel really badly and, you know, not really done much to help the situation. So, you know, instead just make a joke and go on to make whatever point you can and hopefully not, you know, make somebody feel worse than they need to about what happened. Very well said. We're going to take another short break. And when we come back, we're going to ask Rogers to give us his input and his insights on what advice he can give to today's businesses and corporations to establish and restore true cultures of ethics, values, and employee engagement. We'll be right back. ExcellentCultures.com is always interviewing leaders committed to cultural leadership, excellence, and change. These leaders like Russell Freeman, Ross Perot's COO, and Bob Hinton, CPA and Moss Adams' managing partner, have world-class ideas. As advocates for creating strong corporate culture that builds people and serves customers with excellence, they share breakthrough business ideas. Gain insights from Russell, Bob, and others on the Culture News blog at ExcellentCultures.com. Off-the-cuff management is old school at the very least. With culture at the root of every business problem or success, data-driven strategic leadership is where today's best businesses are focused. No one knows that better than Excellent Cultures. After 35 years, they are the Northwest's premier strategic leadership firm. Excellent Cultures has the expertise to read the soul of your business and generate abundance. Take the free BizCulture MRI or ask the experts at excellentcultures.com. As an executive CEO or business owner, do you ever find yourself struggling with work-life balance and achieving your goals at work and at home? Are you overwhelmed in your workload and feel important things just aren't getting done? Our coaches specialize in helping leaders just like you overcome challenges and build a plan to recenter your life to achieve the balance and success you've always hoped for in your business and personal life. Ask the experts at excellentcultures.com about the right plan for you. Welcome back to Biz Culture Matters with our guest, Rogers Weed. So, Rogers, as we kind of pull things down to a close, what kind of advice can you give to today's leaders that maybe are looking at their organizations and realizing that, you know, gosh, we've slipped? You know, we, we, we had great ethics and we got under pressure in this tough economy and some of it's kind of slipped aside, but it's tough to get back on track. Or uh, we've just been in business for so many years and a lot of folks have forgotten why we really got started. How, how, what advice can you give to folks that have fallen into those things that all human beings do? We've just kind of gotten used to wait the way things are to get things back on track and to get things moving in the right direction again. 
Yeah, well, I think, you know, as again, as I listened to some of the speakers at this conference last week on lean, you know, it, it, it almost seems like there's always some kind of um, some kind of precipitating event that, that really causes somebody to wake up and go, we are just not at the top of our game anymore. And in the private sector, it's almost always a financial event. You know, the, the head of Virginia Mason talked about how, how after, you know, earning money every year for, I think it was, 70 years, he said, all of a sudden they lost money in a quarter, you know, or Genie Industries also talked about how, you know, they had, they started, the sales started declining, you know, for the first time in a long time, they were, they were losing revenue. Um, And and they knew it was just a matter of time before profits went negative as well. And so in the, in the private sector, it's, it's often that, and, you know, even in the public sector, you know, ours was an a P&L thing, but it was certainly a fiscal thing where, you know, the economy craters and revenues, tax revenues drop off the cliff. And all of a sudden, you know, you, you realize that you've got most of the same missions to deliver, but, you know, 15 to 20 to 30 percent less resources to do that with anymore. And when you look ahead, nobody is expecting, you know, tax revenues to suddenly spike again anytime soon. So, you know, so I think there's almost always a sort of precipitating event, and it's usually fiscal in one way or another, that really makes this kind of wake-up call happen. And so, you know, you can, you can use that often. Um, and it, it, I, think that, I think the look inside has to start with, um, with, with the conditions, the external conditions that are, are, you know, requiring change of some sort. And then I think the change has to start with the values that are important to the organization and, and you know, uh, an, an effort on behalf of leadership of the organization to say we need to either clarify our values or we need to rethink them, um, and we need to change the way we're all behaving around here to to allow ourselves to get back on track. And so, um, so I think that you know I, I think there's usually a precipitating event, and I think it's an opportunity for leadership to step back and say. Uh, we need to reinvent ourselves, and and we're going to lead, but we need everybody also to to step up and follow. So interesting that you address it from that precipitating event point of view. Most of what we find at the work that we do at Excellent Cultures is the clients that typically come to us are not someone in a crisis situation, but an excellent leader who is just looking for the next level of cutting edge or how do we help our people raise the bar, so to speak. What advice can you give to leaders who maybe don't have a crisis situation to fall back on as a wake-up call to kind of create, you know, their own wake-up call inside of inside of their own organization? Or maybe did you ever see any experiences like that when you were in your your years at Microsoft where you've got this phenomenal growth cycle, how do you get people to wake up and really pay attention to move it to the next level when everything is hunky-dory? Well, sure. Then I think if you're in that kind of situation, then, um, you know, in business school, we talked a lot about situations where, you know, you may think that your market share is 80%, but maybe you've defined your market the wrong way. Um, So I think if I were a leader without a crisis, or without an external shock that was, and I wasn't new to the organization, because that's the other way that, that this can get started, is you're, you're coming in as a new leader and you want to set a tone. 
But if I'm a leader in an existing organization and we're doing okay and there's not a crisis, but I, I realize that we're short, we could do we could be doing a lot more, then I'm going to look for a way to redefine the game that we're in, um, and in a way that 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 really illustrates the the uh, potential that's out there for us if we could just take our game up another notch. I, I think there has to be, I think there has to be some kind of outcome, some kind of goal that motivates people to re-engage on this stuff. Um, so, uh, so in that context, I'd probably be out there saying, you know, we might be the 80% market leader in, in what we've thought our market is, but, but look, if you think about our market as, as this way, then we've only got 5% market share. And there's, there's an opportunity out there for us to go get. And to do that, we need to rethink a little bit the way we operate. So leaders, it sounds like, should be looking for windows of opportunity on a regular basis that will challenge people to kind of take it to the next level. So we get that. But uh, back to our, our engagement piece. Uh, let's just say, and, and what we see so much in corporate America is leaders have wonderful visions for the next level and growth and opportunity. That's why they're leaders. But the challenge is not necessarily with the leader having that kind of a vision, but communicating and transmitting that vision to their people in a manner that excitement takes place in the hearts and minds of the people, not so much about the leader's point of view, but about their own point of view in getting there. And what I've seen you do so well in the type of leadership that you display you know, at the Department of Commerce is ask the right questions that cause people to look deep and think deep and reflect and look at what's going on inside of their own minds and hearts, so to speak, and then bring that to the forefront where the people involved in following the leader kind of self-discover the next level of excellence, so to speak, as opposed to a leader just being a good inspirational speaker and preacher. Can you give us an example of maybe a couple of, of questions that you've asked before that you found, or, or even questions that you ask frequently to your people to just get them to challenge themselves and look for next levels of performance excellence that are not dependent on the leader, but dependent upon you know the people who are doing the thinking, so to speak? Sure, I, I can think of a couple of things. Um, you know, one is that uh, it gets back to the thing I was saying earlier about um, in, in the public sector, we're often a monopoly on whatever service or product we're providing. And so um, one of the things that I have always done with, um, because, you know, I think everybody in the agency is very proud of the work that their organization does and, and feel like their program delivers for their stakeholders in and, and, and a great way. And yet when I came in, there were very few, I couldn't, could find very few places where people were benchmarking themselves against anything, any, anybody else besides their own achievement. So, you know, so we might see a line that's going in a positive direction saying, hey, we're delivering more service every year to more clients. But, you know, so, but the question would be, well, but can we compare that to any other state or any other jurisdiction to see, you know, on a relative basis how we're doing? And, and that was very rarely in place. And I think, so I think just coming in and asking that question of, are we benchmarking ourselves against anybody and what we do besides ourselves was, was, um, was 
provocative and got people to think more about, well, what are the metrics that are out there that we could look at and how can we really tell how we're doing relative to other people that might be doing something similar. Um, so, so that would be one example. And then, you know, and the other example for me that comes to mind is just in, in my relationship as a manager to different direct reports of mine. And, you know, I think that one of the things you can do as a manager um, is really take the time to think about how your, what, what your direct reports can do to really take themselves to the next level as individuals. And, you know, I've had, I have one particular direct report who does a great job managing the organization and is a very creative thinker on administrative issues. And what I, was, I really said to him is, you know, you need to spend some time working on your vision and being able to, to be a thought leader on the things you're working on, not just a, a super competent administrator of programs that you already have. And so, you know, so he, we talked about that for a year or two, and sure enough, you know, in the last 6 to 12 months, um, he's gone out and gotten a, a grant from another organization to do some research that I think will really generate insights into how we can move forward in the areas that he's managing. And and uh, I think that will allow him to create some vision that he hasn't had before now. So That's an exciting perspective, asking department heads to come up with visions, visions for their respective organizations and essentially impart those visions to their people. I wonder, and I wonder how many leaders actually ha- have that as a best practice. Typically what we hear is that whoever the top leader is, is supposed to be the big visionary and they come up with all of the vision and tell everybody what they're supposed to do and people are supposed to get inspired and follow the leader. Maybe that's one of the reasons why we have so many disengaged employees. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, Unfortunately, there are a lot of leaders or managers who, if they're, if one of their reports came in and said, you know, I've been thinking about what we're trying to do in the group, and I, I have some ideas about how we might be able to take it to the next level, I, I'm, I'm, I have a bad feeling that a lot of, there are a lot, too many managers out there that would go, you know, that's not really what we're paying you for. You know, we're just paying you to, to get your job done and make sure you don't screw up, you know, and that, that's the sad thing is to the extent that that's, going on in organizations, we're missing a huge opportunity. But, you know, um, so I, I, you know, I think that that's really the, the opportunity we have is to, is to actually encourage people to do that and then take their good ideas and make them happen. One final question, Rogers. Tell our listeners what they can do as leaders to, you know, if you could give them just kind of a, a pithy set of, you know, you know, we Westerners love lists. You know, we love bullet statements. We love to be able to have something that we can just check off. And sometimes that's part of our problem is we're so busy dealing with the list, we miss the point and end up with these Dilbert moments that you've you've so well described to us. But if you were going to give, you know, just a series of, let's call it uh, personal study, personal study reflection points, you know, if you're going to tell leaders, what should you go study, what should you explore, rather than just what the bestseller of the month is trying to market to you, what could you, you know, what items could you explore and study that would really cause you to go deep, engage your people, build ethics, build values in your organization that are sustainable and long-lived, what recommendations could you make? Oh, gosh. 
I'm I'm not sure that I'm not going to disappoint you on this one, Steve. Which is a shame since it's your, it seems to be one of the last questions. But you know, I I haven't can't tell you I've read a ton of books on you know how to lead organizations or you maybe know, that's why you're such a great leader. Well, I don't know. You know, I I think you know I, I think part of it is just um, maybe part of it is that my mother's a therapist. You know, so I grew up you know understanding a little bit about you know how people behave and how that impacts. So, other so point number one: find a good therapist. <laughs> find a good therapist who can teach you how people behave and why they behave. Just, Sorry, you know, I couldn't pass that one up. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just in the business world, we just don't. You know, we don't come into contact with that stuff very often, and there's a lot to learn from it, I guess, is what I would say, is that, you know, maybe maybe everybody, as a New Year's resolution, should say, I'm going to go find one book on, you know, on behavioral psychology, or I'm going to go make a friend that's in the, you know, counseling and therapy business, and just pick their brains on why people do what they do, and how to how to get people engaged and excited about their work, and just, you know... Just bring some of those ideas into the workplace. You know, we I think we silo that kind of thing way more than we should as well. Well, that's that's great advice. Okay, so how about how about the second point? The second point being what? How do we how do we as leaders? Okay, so we get you know we're gonna go we're, we're gonna go read a book on human behavior. We're gonna go find a friend that that's a therapist that's going to talk to us about how people really think and how people really engage. Mm-hmm. Uh, Give us a second New Year's resolution. Oh, I would say to, you know, come up with three things that you can do differently uh, at work that are going to, you know, that are likely to generate the kind of change you'd like to see in your organization. You know, just find three ideas. You know, my, you know, my three right now are to get out of my office more, um, to, you know, and just and, and go out and talk to people. I'm trying to figure out how to involve more people in the leadership of the organization and the key decisions that we're making. Um, and the last one is I'm trying to figure out a plan for us to up our investment in professional development because those are things that people told me would help us get the culture we want. So, you know, if everybody could make a resolution to find three things they can do, you know, every week in their job that will help their organization's culture improve, I think that'd be a fantastic news. Yeah, what a wonderful bit of advice. So, listeners. New Year's resolutions coming up. Go find a therapist that is a new friend that can teach you about how human beings behave. Get a book and then develop the number three, three things that can make a difference. Rogers, thank you so much for sharing your heart with our listeners. You have given us so much valuable content. The folks that uh, will have the opportunity to benefit from this will be thankful to you for a long time. You need to get back to running the state government, don't you? (laughs) I'm afraid I do. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rogers. My pleasure. Listeners, thank you so much for being with us on Biz Culture Matters, 7 a.m. on Saturdays. Let your friends, let your family, let your business coworkers know about us. Thanks for being with us. See you next week.